It's Wednesday, December 11th. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. Today in Washington news, we found a unicorn, a thing both sides of the aisle can agree on. It's a new trade deal with Mexico and Canada. Then, President Trump announced he's signing an executive order to combat anti-Semitism. And a lot of people are talking about it. And finally, Time Magazine has decided who its Person of the Year is. And let's just say you may have heard of her. We're here to make your evening smarter. Let's skim this. Today's episode is brought to you by Skylight Frame, the best holiday gift for the special people in your life. The most complicated story of the day is about a thing called USMICA. That's the USMCA, or the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. Most people are calling it USMICA because apparently no one could think of a better nickname. Anyway, USMICA is a new trade agreement that the leaders of the big three North American countries are pretty pumped about. And for once, President Trump and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi are on the same page. Here they were yesterday. Trade deal, the great trade deal, one of the greatest trade deals ever made for our country. There is no question, of course, that this uh, uh, trade agreement is much better than NAFTA. So today we're going to get into how this new agreement came about, what it does, and what it could mean for the U.S. Let's get into it starting with a trip back to the 90s. The NAFTA you just heard Nancy Pelosi referring to is the North American Free Trade Agreement. It went into effect in 1994 and was supposed to make it cheaper and easier to trade goods between the U.S. and its neighbors to the North and South. And it kind of worked. Over the next two decades, trade almost quadrupled between the three countries. And Canada and Mexico got more than a third of U.S. exports, more than any other country. But NAFTA was also kind of controversial. Critics have said that NAFTA has led to job losses, especially in car manufacturing. They say companies moved production to other countries, including Mexico, because it was cheaper to hire workers there, which led to a lot of job losses in the U.S. A third of the auto industry was out of a job. President Trump has been campaigning against NAFTA for years. Here he was during the 2016 campaign. I'm going to renegotiate NAFTA, one of the worst trade deals ever signed in the history of our country, perhaps the worst ever signed in the history, frankly, of the world. So for the last couple of years, trade reps from three countries have been negotiating a new trade deal. By October last year, Canada and Mexico were on board, and the leaders of all three countries shook hands on it. But the deal still needed approval by the nation's legislatures, and House Democrats wouldn't put it to a vote, partly because they wanted stronger protections for workers. So lawmakers in the White House have been hashing it out. And yesterday, they said they'd come to an agreement on USMICA and plan to bring it to a vote in the House before the end of the year. So what's in the new trade deal? To be clear, there are a lot of similarities between NAFTA and USMICA. Some are calling it NAFTA 2.0, but there are some big updates. Let's start with the big one, car manufacturing. Remember, one common complaint regarding U.S. employment is that car companies are moving so much of their manufacturing outside of the U.S. The NAFTA rule was that 62.5% of a car or truck's parts has to be made within the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, or else they'd be subject to tariffs. But critics said that wasn't enough to stop car companies from moving there. So the New Deal ups that percentage to 75%. 
which means car companies have to start sourcing more of their parts from inside North America. And on top of that, in the next few years, at least 40% of the labor it takes to build a car needs to be done by workers making at least 16 bucks an hour. That might exclude a lot of workers in Mexico, where the pay is about a third of that. And it means car companies won't be able to access cheaper labor and would instead be forced to find workers where the pay is $16 an hour, which potentially would bring more manufacturing jobs back to the US. But the deal has some perks for workers in Mexico too. Mexican workers will be allowed to unionize and negotiate their contracts. Also, US farmers may be getting a boost. That's because for a long time, Canada has kept tight restrictions on dairy imports to prevent competition with Canadian farmers. Now, Canada will open new market access to US dairy farmers. And there are also new standards to protect the environment and wildlife, like a crackdown on illegal fishing and on air and water pollution. Like we said, a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are really excited about this new deal. In part because, hey, the White House and House Democrats actually worked together in the midst of all the impeachment drama to get something done. But there are still concerns that elements of this new deal could hurt consumers. Like with car manufacturers, if they have to pay workers more to meet minimum wage regulations, they might pass those costs on to the consumer. It's also unclear right now how exactly all of these regulations will be enforced, because the final deal hasn't even been made public yet. So while everyone seems ready to party, there's still some things that need to get ironed out. So what's the skim? A bipartisan group of U.S. leaders is giving the new trade deal between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada two big thumbs up. It's being seen as a win for bipartisanship and a win for the economies of the U.S. and its neighbors. But there are still some concerns about how the trade deal will be enforced and how it might directly impact consumers. For more on how Usmica affects your wallet, head on over to theskim.com money. Speaking of international trade relations, there's also another big story on our radar today. As Usmica is being celebrated, the World Trade Organization is feeling anxious. They oversee, regulate, and settle trade disputes between different countries. Their anxiety isn't about Usmica, but about the WTO court system. Basically, the Trump administration is refusing to consider nominees for empty positions on the appellate court panel. And now, the WTO has lost its ability to rule on disputed cases, meaning it can't do its job anymore. So while North America is cheering its unity on trade, the body charged with keeping an eye on trade throughout the world is kind of in shambles. Coming up, President Trump announced a new executive order that could change the way the U.S. interprets Judaism. That's next. For a thoughtful gift this year, try Skylight Frame. It's a touchscreen photo frame that you can email photos to, and they appear in seconds. Thousands of moms call it the best gift ever. Now, as a special holiday offer, you can get free shipping with your purchase when you go to skylightframe.com and enter code SKIM. That's right. To get free shipping with your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com and enter code SKIM. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E.com, promo code SKIM. Today, President Trump announced he's signing an executive order that could allow the U.S. to interpret Judaism as not just a religion, but also as a nationality. So what would this order actually do? At the time we're recording this episode, we don't actually have a copy of it. 
but you may have seen a lot of people talking about it on Twitter today. It all has to do with Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VI protects people from discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin under programs that receive federal funding, like colleges and universities. But right now, Title VI doesn't outline protection on the basis of religion. So if the federal government starts interpreting Judaism as a nationality, not as a religion, Title VI can then come into play. The government could open investigations into schools for not doing enough to combat anti-Semitism and could threaten to withhold that federal funding, too. Here's Trump announcing it a few minutes ago. This is our message to universities. If you want to accept the tremendous amount of federal dollars that you get every year, you must reject anti-Semitism. So why is Trump doing this now? It's being reported that the reason has to do with the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, or BDS. It's a pro-Palestinian global movement calling for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions as a form of pressure on Israel in response to its treatment of Palestinians. And in recent years, BDS has been gaining traction on college campuses. The White House has been critical of BDS and also of schools like Duke University and the University of North Carolina, saying their Middle Eastern Studies program has an anti-Israel bias and needed an overhaul. It's being reported that today's executive order is tailored to addressing those kinds of concerns. Reactions to the executive order are mixed. Jewish organizations like the Orthodox Union reportedly say that this order will better protect students from anti-Semitism. But J Street, a pro-Israel, liberal nonprofit group, says that the order doesn't really address anti-Semitism experienced by Jewish people and is instead cracking down on those who are critical of Israeli politics a.k.a. not letting them have freedom of speech. Also important to keep in mind that while the president has positioned himself as an ally of Israel, he's also been accused recently of using anti-Semitic tropes himself. But administration officials say today's move is simply to clarify what's already often enforced by Title VI and to try to address anti-Semitism on campus. And they point to a bill that has a similar goal and has a lot of bipartisan support in Congress. That bill's currently stalled. Late this afternoon, some websites reported on a supposed leaked draft of today's executive order that contains language very similar to how the Obama administration interpreted Title VI, which means today's executive order may not change things all that much. But like we said, the final text of the order hasn't actually been released yet. So even though you may be seeing a lot of reporting about this executive order today, details are still to come. If you've been reading about 2020 lately, you might have seen the latest buzzword, transparency. South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg has been rising in the polls, but he's taken heat for not being transparent enough about his past work as a private consultant and for hosting private fundraisers with high-dollar donors. Now Buttigieg says he's going to open up, that those private fundraising events will now be open to the press. Buttigieg also says his campaign will tell the public who those big donors are. Buttigieg's campaign manager says he's the only candidate so far who's doing that. Other candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say they won't even hold these private fundraisers to begin with, that they go against the progressive grassroots movement they're building. But that doesn't mean Sanders and Warren can't get creative. Last Saturday, Warren's campaign hosted her first campaign fundraiser in Los Angeles. There were a ton of celebs who showed up, 
But no Warren. Instead, her campaign set up a life-size cardboard cutout of her. Seriously. Basically her campaign saying, you can come and bring your checkbook, but don't expect a handshake. For more on the road to 2020, head on over to theskim.com slash 2020. Before we go today, we've got a fun fact coming to you from Time Magazine's Person of the Year. The 2019 title goes to none other than Greta Thunberg. Yeah, we've talked about her a lot. The 16-year-old Swedish climate activist has inspired people of all generations all over the world to take the global climate crisis seriously and to challenge world leaders to do more. But fun fact, Person of the Year actually started out as Man of the Year in 1928, recognizing Charles Lindbergh for his solo flight across the Atlantic the previous year. And reportedly, Time Magazine only started doing it because news was slow that week, and editors realized they hadn't yet showcased Lindbergh's historic flight. The title didn't even become the consistently gender-neutral person of the year until 1999. My, how the times change. And that's all for Skim This. Thanks again for listening and be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we want to let you know about a new episode from our other podcast, Skimmed from the Couch. In this week's episode, our co-founders and co-CEOs, Carly and Danielle, sat down with Kathleen King, the founder of Tate's Bake Shop, who shares why the failure of her first business led to her future success. By the time I opened Tate's, I was fearless, unemotional, and driven to succeed because I had no money. Listen to this new episode on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 